I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Would You Rather, a podcast where Cosmos science journalists debate a topic and only one comes out the victor. Today, Ellen Fidian and Jacinta Bowler debate whether you would rather be on the International Space Station or an Antarctic Research Station for the next 12 months. Tell me about the science of Antarctica. All right, so I think it's worth asking first why you would want to live in either of these places. So I've taken a look at Antarctica. Both places are obviously there for science. They're there so that we can learn more stuff about the world. Yeah. The sort of central important thing about Antarctica is that it is one of the very few completely untouched or almost completely untouched environments in the world. So the air down there we know hasn't had anthropogenic interference, the ice, all of those sorts of things, and the ice has spent hundreds of thousands of years building up. Climate research is the obvious one. That's the thing that people always talk about, looking at the Antarctic ice cores to learn more about how Earth's temperature has changed over the last few hundred thousand years. That's how we initially learned the climate was warming and we collected evidence on how CO2 levels had fluctuated over all that time. But there's also a lot of really important ecological stuff being happening and physics as well. There are sensors in the Antarctic ice that are designed to detect subatomic particles. Are they? So, really? Yeah. yeah. So, so W bosons, for instance, they spotted them in these um, Antarctic like ice cubes, basically. So these kind of kilometre-wide experiments because you've got space where you can just do this sort of thing, like you're not going to get interference from anything else um, and detect these like tiny particles. Who needs environment when you've got tiny particles to exactly. look for? <laughs> <laughs> All right. From a lot of environment to none, what about the ISS? Why would you go up there? Yeah, there is really not a lot of room. The toilet is right next to the exercise bike. It's like a whole thing up there. But, um, okay, so the science is, again, pretty obvious. The ISS has been up there for 20 years now. So it's 408 kilometres above the Earth. It's spinning round, and there's really low gravity up there. The microgravity, obviously, of course, the Earth is still You know, the astronauts still deal with Earth's gravity, but because of the fact that they're spinning so fast around the Earth, it actually feels weightless. And so what they can do up there is these really interesting microgravity experiments to basically find out whether humans, spiders, mice, lettuce, all that kind of stuff, and how it deals in this microgravity condition and whether it actually you know, still grows normally, whether spiders can do their thing. And most of the time, the answer is usually yes, which I think is pretty cool considering all of humanity, all of the world as it is, have grown up and existed for centuries, millennia, on a rock that has the same level of gravity. So we don't need gravity. Well, Actually, no, that's that's not true. <laughs> We're going to talk about this later. There's some serious health implications of being on the ISS long term or being in space long term, but you can get by pretty okay in no gravity for a short period of time. It's not like no oxygen, so. 
no, it's not like no oxygen, um, which the ISS does have plenty of, by the way. Um, it's fine. Although I was going to say that Antarctica is obviously really cold and, you know, really dry because of the wind just constantly coming through. There's no rain. There is a lot of humidity on the ISS. It's, you know, you can turn the temperature up and down. 22 degrees is pretty standard. However, humidity is due to everyone else breathing out and sweating around you. So it's it's everyone else's sweat and grossness that's causing the humidity. But, you know, it gets cleaned. It's probably fine. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, the environment that you're actually in. So humidity, obviously, in the ISS sounds massively, massively pleasant. You're right that Antarctica, the exterior is incredibly cold and incredibly dry. You can actually, like, take boiling water outside um, often in Antarctica and throw it into the air and it'll turn into, like, a mist and ice before it hits the ground, which is extremely cool, I think. But the interior, so the, the stations where people live most of the time and do most of their work, they keep those at about 18 degrees. So it's perfectly comfortable, not the 22 at the ISS. <laughs> Four <laughs> degrees cooler. <laughs> For 12 months, that might make a difference. Exactly, like. exactly. So obviously uh, going outside, you have to suit up properly. Um, you've got you've to have several layers, long woolen underwear, um, and then several layers and then waterproofing. But at least you, like, can go outside. <laughs> they do go outside in the ISS too. Yeah, that's true, yeah. It's just to repair things on the outside of the ship, and if you float away, you might die. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that's also, I guess, technically true in Antarctica if you leave the station, if you go too far away from the station. Um, But you can, like, go out there for extended periods of time. People do field missions where they take out tents and stuff as well. There is nothing that sounds worse than being in a tent on Antarctica. Like, no, nothing. Like, take me to the ISS any day. Absolutely. So that I can swim in my colleagues' sweat? Look, is that on dry lips? Like, Ellen, do you want to use chapstick? Like, I'm pro chapstick. There's a spot uh, on the Australian research stations called Woolies where they have toiletries that you can refill, which I think is really cute. That is cute. (laughs) Okay, well, the thing about the environment on the ISS is you know, as you said, there's there's a lot of humidity. There's things like that. There is some cool stuff. So you get to see the sunrise 15 to 16 times a day. Um, that's because you're traveling at 27,000 kilometers per hour and you complete one trip around the planet every 92 minutes. So you could very easily, you know, just eat your dinner or do something else, watch a movie and then look up and, oh, it's a different day. How exciting. Um, that is pretty cool. there is some other things that are like, not ideal um so you can watch the sunrise in a little room but unfortunately this room is next to the toilet and the exercise bike so maybe it wouldn't (laughs) be the most pleasant smelling area um but it would look pretty so that's always nice wow okay that's not ideal the sunrise thing i will cop there are a couple of stations run by the australian antarctic division where you don't get sun for a couple of months you do get what's called civil twilight so the sun gets to just below the horizon you can see the sky lightning but then the sun doesn't rise and then it gets darker again what if you Um, had like the seasonal depression right like people that like get really sad during winter you could you couldn't go to antarctica yeah it's a really it's a serious issue when people have to do like proper health assessments beforehand if they're going to be there for 12 months um they have to you know be ready to they have to be they have to be ready for that sort of thing and it happens north of the arctic circle as well where there are quite a few 
towns. Some people handle it very, very well. Some people don't see the sun for a couple of weeks and it, they, it really does cause very serious psychological issues. So that can happen. Yeah. Um, and it's something that they expect you to be ready for if you're heading there. So what you're saying is if you're looking for sunrise per day capita, I think <laughs> the you'd be much better off on the ISS than you would be in Antarctica. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, because in, in summer the sun doesn't set for a few months at a time similarly, so you don't get the rising or the setting. <laughs> you're listening to the Cosmos Podcast with Ellen Fidian and Jacinta Bowler. And don't forget to visit cosmosmagazine.com for more great content. Now let's get back to the debate. Should we talk about food, Jacinta? Yeah, well, okay. So there's a couple of good things about the ISS. So you would think that the food would be worse on the ISS, right? Because it it feels more remote to Mm. me than Antarctica, even though Antarctica is obviously super remote. However, they get fresh food deliveries every two months. Every two months, a plane flies up, and so they get new food. They have these really specialised machines that mean that they can just put the dried food into this thing. It puts more water into it, and then it's basically normal food. It actually tastes really nice. Nothing like the um, dried ice cream you might have seen (laughs) at astronaut (laughs) shops. That's not what they eat, trust me. Um, And then also when they get fresh deliveries, they bring up apples and other types of fresh fruit and they just eat it fast before it goes off. Um, They also have special meals for things like Thanksgiving and stuff like that. Um, Food on the ISS is not as bad as you'd imagine. But do they have dedicated chefs? (laughs) No. Do they have dedicated chefs? It is all um, prepackaged from down on earth that they then bring it up. Yeah, that's what I thought. I'm surprised that they get it every two months, fresh food. That's actually pretty good. Uh, yeah. Antarctica, like I said, every station's got a cook who works, like, for the station, and that's what they do. They also get everyone else to help out in the kitchen um, and, like, with cleaning and putting meals together, all of that sort of thing. Um, and, again, they cook stuff for special occasions. They do, like, hot cross buns and big Christmas dinners and um, all sorts of fun. Yeah, and special, like, themed nights as well where they get people to wear costumes, which is quite fun. And so the food, again, they get fresh deliveries not necessarily every two months during winter, but they do get fresh deliveries. They tend to focus on stuff like carrots, potatoes, citrus, the sort of stuff that's going to last on a ship for a week or so, maybe two weeks. Because I'm going to start getting curvy, scurvy as well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But they also have hydroponic facilities where they grow a few fresh things as well in Antarctica. And that's actually the, the little lettuce experiments that they do on the ISS. They model a lot of those in Antarctica to see how things were going to grow in harsh environments. Ah. So they actually lent on a lot of Antarctic research to figure out how they were going to grow this stuff on the ISS and whether they could grow it in space and sort of, I guess, assuming we're heading further out into space to grow vegetables, that as well. Yeah, well, that's it, right? Like, I I will say that the ISS does grow, like, lettuce. They did chilies really recently. Um, Mm -hmm. That's another thing. If you've got blocked sinuses, chili is really good for that Um, so you can actually taste something. So, Mm -hmm. but that's really interesting that if it wasn't for Antarctica, we might not have ISS, you know, lettuce. (laughs) Yeah, it's important. If you're heading out on a field mission, I think the food availability goes down very quickly. So on the stations, they get apparently 700 different varieties of food per year, which is pretty cool. But if you're heading out into the environment for an extended period of time, 
you can't take meat or eggs or anything that might say carry a zoonotic disease. So that's fine to have on the station where they're controlling the waste, but they're really, really worried about contaminating the local flora and fauna. So the longer field missions, you'll get all of this freeze dried stuff that you then have to like use water to rehydrate and cook. So possibly I'm going to say starting to get on par with the ISS, but then you can (laughs) head back to the station. <laughs> but the real problem with the ISS, and we have to talk about this, is is toilets. Mm. Um, they're not good. Uh, so toilets in the ISS, uh, you can imagine microgravity. It's not super conducive to removing waste. Peeing, if you were to pee, the droplets would just fly around everywhere. Poo, I don't know how it would exit the body if you know what i mean mm. sorry i'm a graphic here in 2020 nasa actually upgraded the toilets for the iss for a cool 23 million dollars but it still kind of sucks <laughs> <laughs> kind of sucks or literally sucks both absolutely good. Both. Good. um so water and other excrement um so you just need to suck it to be able to make it move away um the expensive toilet is called the Universal Waste Management System and there's one hose that astronauts put up to their junk to pee into and then a tiny little camp toilet device with stri- foot straps to keep the astronauts in place for poo. Um, <laughs> just really exciting stuff there. Um, each time the astronaut does a poo, it's like sucked into a little baggie which the astronaut seals and then like pushes down into the toilet Um they then put a new bag on there and so the p- process repeats. The canister holds about 30 poos and the whole thing needs to be discarded after that. They then push it into the depths of space. <laughs> so there's all of these canisters, each with 30 poos in them, floating around in low Earth orbit? No, no. So what they do is they push it out when they um, go down to Earth so it automatically uh, uh, burns it up in the very, atmosphere. Yeah, it would be very un professional of them to um create extra space junk like that so it's, yeah. it's burning up into the atmosphere okay. it's not just that would be awful though if it's <laughs> canisters of food. i thought i was about to learn something even worse <laughs> today <laughs> um yeah it's, it's not good and then the showers as well there's no showers because um, obviously you can't the, that cow is for a shower it's not going to work so what they have to do instead is like basically a wet cloth wipe down um which i'm, I'm not going to say is is very good no no you know one of the cool things about antarctica <laughs> toilets normal sewage <laughs> or fairly close to normal sewage yeah, on the say, like, it's not normal sewage yeah they have to they, obviously they have to be really careful with the the waste that gets um built that gets sealed carefully and brought on and off and again when you're in the fields um it's not as pleasant as at the stations where they are just normal toilets pretty much they have basically a big bucket they call it a poo bucket and a pee barrel um, <laughs> each of them has a funnel on the top and then like a polystyrene seat so because that's a little bit insulated at least uh and then that's what you use if you're out in the field okay but here's the thing right even if you're an astronaut you have to poo into this little camp toilet you don't have to carry it around with you after you like get up and finish well no true and i guess you burn it up in the atmosphere they have to burn they have to incinerate the the waste when they get back to the stations so that's again (laughs) 
a little bit more hands-on, I guess. So you're coming back from a big field mission. You're really tired. You've got your barrel of poo on your shoulder and you just have to wait till you get back to incinerate oh it's probably on like the ski do or something you don't have oh, to yeah, like true. carry it <laughs> just technology has improved a little bit since Mawson's time all right yeah fair enough <laughs> you're listening to the cosmos podcast with ellen fidian and jacinta bowler And don't forget to follow Cosmos on social media. Now let's get back to the pros and cons of space toilets. But all of this toilet stuff aside, um, I think one of the big keys of the ISS and one of the big draws of the ISS is just the sheer few number of people that have been to space. Prestige is a huge deal in this. If you were to be on the ISS for 12 months, you would be under one of 600 people that had ever been to space and just over 100 people that have lived on the ISS long term. Now, it depends. <laughs> you might not actually be an astronaut. It depends how you got into the ISS in the first place. Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson are both not astronauts because NASA recently put in new restrictions. But I reckon if you're on the ISS for 12 months, you're probably doing science experiments. You're probably part of the crew. Um, and so I think they'd probably give you, yeah, astronaut stripes. Yeah, the, the astronaut prestige is a compelling point. What I would say about Antarctica is that you don't have to be as qualified to get there. And I think that's kind of cool as well. Like, obviously, I talked about chefs before. They need plumbers. They need electricians. They need a range of people doing really everyday jobs there. And I think that's kind of really nice. There are way, way, way more people who've been there. So the Australian sort of division alone, you get over the winter, there are about 80 people across four different stations. Over the summer, you get 500. There, If you count other countries' research stations as well, so the US and other countries, that gets to several thousand over the summer. So it's much less exclusive in that way, but it's still like a few thousand scientists at any given time. It's not something that many people get to do. Yeah, so you're saying it's the everyday man's ISS. (laughs) (laughs) The thinking man's ISS. (laughs) Well, on that note, I will say that you get to do a lot more everyday things in Antarctica, which if you're stuck there for 12 months, I think is worth noting. Like they have a whole hobby hut where you can do like wood carving and like bring along your hobbies. You can bring musical instruments. Um, You can do a whole range of outdoor activities. You can actually fly drones if you like. You have to meet certain very specific requirements, but you can do it. Most of the outdoor stuff, recreational stuff you have to get a risk assessment signed to do which I quite like I mean like I've worked in the public service I everything needs a risk assessment I understand (laughs) okay the other thing about the ISS that we probably really need to mention here is that health-wise it's not good for you now I said Mm. earlier in the piece that humans and and other animals can definitely get by on microgravity like it's fine everything mostly works but long-term 12 months, potentially longer if we're going to Mars or places like that, the body starts doing weird stuff. So Scott Kelly was an astronaut who actually did a whole year in space. His twin brother, also an astronaut, stayed on Earth, which gave scientists a really incredible ability to measure the differences between them. So while in space, Scott's bones thinned, his muscles atrophied, even his eyeballs changed shape. There were also changes to his gene expression that were different to Mark's, his twin, back on Earth. So 
luckily most of this stuff went back to normal after he came back to earth so assumedly your eyeballs would also go back to normal when you came back to earth Uh, but not all of it so for example scott's cognitive abilities improved during the mission and then sharply declined after he came back and although they rebounded they never returned to pre-flight levels i will say that after returning to earth from the iss there's a lot of uh media stuff there's a lot of appearances that you have to be at and it's not necessarily that it was because of him coming back to earth it could have been something different there's also pain (laughs) it's just getting better isn't it scott said scott said that after he returned to earth his skin was incredibly sensitive so this is because your clothes don't really touch you when you're in space they kind of just float around you um he said his feet hurt when he walked his skin hurt where his clothes touched him that's not to say that this will happen to everybody. Um, apparently, even Scott didn't have it after his first mission in space, just the second one. But, you know, if you're going to the ISS for 12 months, it's better if you know all the facts. That's reasonable. So there aren't similar levels of health risks for travelling to Antarctica. You should be coming back in roughly the shape you went. That said, medicine's still not easy to do there and particularly mm. if you get sick over winter it's often very very difficult to get help to to airlift people in and out and even like if you're there over the summer there's this thing that they refer to as the a factor which is the just incredibly unpredictable conditions and can cause all sorts of weird flow-on effects in logistics so a few years ago the australian antarctic icebreaker was couldn't go on a mission which meant that they had to use other countries helicopters to airlift people out of one place because they were essentially stranded there so everything kind of dominoes a bit there was a case in 1999 an american scientist who was there over the winter she was actually a physician she was the station doctor named jerry nielsen uh she developed breast cancer while she was there and they couldn't get her off antarctica oh no so she had to perform her own biopsy which under um, sort of a teleconference instruction. Horrifying. Uh, she was okay. She Unfortunately, the cancer came back about half a decade later, so she died about 10 years ago. But um, yeah. she, she was okay following that biopsy. Um, it would be a bit of an event. So the getting to and there, I think, even though it takes a lot less energy, I guess, to get to and there, you don't have to do it on a rocket, it can in some ways be almost a little bit more isolating, which causes a few of those kind of logistical and then like medical problems. I still think health-wise you're better off going to Antarctica (laughs) because the effects of zero gravity don't happen there. (laughs) yeah look and i mean if something was to happen for example an appendix that's that's Mm -hmm. a pretty common thing that happens but it's quite life-threatening when it happens if you were to have something like that happen on the iss there is a medical so he's got a there's a flight surgeon who would be able to help you but and there's a lot of stuff on the iss to be able to help in those situations but i don't think it's necessarily a great environment to be super sick in again (laughs) Uh, I don't even know whether they've done any of these surgeries up in space because it's microgravity. What are you going to do? The blood will be floating away. It would be Mm. very weird. Um, But saying that, pretty quickly, I think you would be able to get somebody up there to get them off if you needed to. I think it would take longer to be able to do it um, if you were doing it from the ice, if you were doing it from Antarctica. But I don't think you'd want to get sick on either. You just have to be good 
yeah. is just healthy for 12 months. <laughs> and that's why they do really strict medical evaluations before both any trips to Antarctica or the ISS because they don't, they're not going to let you go there if they think there's a risk that um, you're going to get sick in a way that they can't treat. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Have I convinced you? Would you rather spend 12 months in Antarctica or on the ISS? Oh, I still think I would want to be on the ISS. And maybe it's just my ego, like maybe it's my ego <laughs> inside of me that just wants to be one of a hundred of something. But I think with all of the bad things, the toilet, the potential health issues, I think I'd do the ISS. But you know what? Antarctica is a very close second. What about you? Antarctica, a hundred percent. I don't. I don't care enough about prestige. To <laughs> want to swim in other people's sweat for twelve months when I could be going somewhere dry and cold. <laughs> I also get seasick, so I feel like I probably wouldn't do very well mm. in either place. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, worth considering. Both of us might fail the medical, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you very much for listening to Would You Rather. We hope you enjoyed it. Please let us know which of the two you would pick. And we will be back next week with a different scientific bind to debate. I've heard um, from the grapevine, the grapevine being my desk, that it might have something to do with spiders or snakes. Yes. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast featured Jacinta Bowler and Ellen Vidian. Thank you.